You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody. How is the sound? Fantastic. Well, good evening uh, to all of you, friends, colleagues, uh, distinguished visitors. Uh, you're all extremely welcome. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, uh, which is Trinity's Institute for Arts and Humanities Research. And the Hub has been pleased to host the annual Edmund Burke Lecture for almost a decade now, thanks to uh, in a, a generous support that's given to us by the Fallon family in honour of Trinity alumnus Porrick Fallon. And I'm very pleased that Gillian Fallon Jr. is joining us this evening to represent the Fallon family. Over the almost decade that we've been running the Burke Lecture, we have heard from a number of very distinguished international scholars. Uh, previous speakers have included Mary McAleese, Robert Fisk, uh, and last year we had Michael Ignatieff with us. Uh, for tonight's lecture, we come to 2023, and as you'll have seen on your way in, we are recording the lecture. I know I don't need to remind this audience to please turn off your mobile phones. And also, I just want to let you know that uh, at the end of the talk, we will have time for your comments and responses and questions. For this year's lecture, it's a very great personal pleasure for me to introduce one of my academic heroes, Joanna Burke. Joanna is Professor Emerita of History at Birkbeck University of London. She's a fellow of the British Academy. She is the Gresham College Professor of Rhetoric. And her many prize-winning books, and I'm not going to attempt to list them all, uh, include Dismembering the Male, Fear, A Cultural History, and the, the groundbreaking 2011 book, What It Means to Be Human. In 2022, she published Disgrace, Global Reflections on Sexual Violence. Uh, and she's also led the Wellcome Trust-funded project, Shame, which addresses medical and psychiatric aspects of sexual violence. And I also want to note in uh, the, the, the current challenging climate for higher education uh, that she's also recently published what we might call an interventionist history of her own institution, Birkbeck, 200 Years of Radical Education for Working People. Uh, but in many respects, Joanna's distinguished publication list began here in Dublin as part of her doctorate on 19th century women uh, in Ireland, she, which she took at the Australian National University. She came to Trinity as a visiting scholar. And some of the research that she did while she was here in Dublin informed her very first book, published back in 1993, and I know some of you have read it, Husbandry to Housewifery, Women, Economic Change, and Housework in Ireland, 1890 to 1914. So this evening, we are very genuinely welcoming you back home, Joanna, uh, uh, with a small update that uh, uh, many Irish women are still doing the housework. <laughs> Joanna's scholarship is truly interdisciplinary, and those of you who've read her work will know how fluently she moves across literature, across ethics, philosophy, language, psychology. But at heart, she is a historian of culture and society. 
and a historian who is distinguished for me by her rare ability to give voice to others. Her books are, and here I'm quoting her own words from what it means to be human, populated by people telling stories about how they made their worlds. Each person, she writes, is born into a world forged by others. We resist, create, and recreate, but always from a starting point that is never of our own choosing. Well, in this vein, Joanna is currently working on a new book uh, entitled, for the moment, Evil Women, and she's going to be touching on this subject tonight. So to give the 2023 Trinity College Dublin Edmund Burke Lecture on Contemplating Evil, Monstrous Women in History, Politics and Law, please join me in welcoming Professor Joanna Burke. such introductions, I have to admit. They make me just think, oh my goodness, I'm going to disappoint everyone in this room. Um, I'm so really, really thrilled to be here. Um, as Eve um, has said, I credit Trinity with really starting my career. Um, I'm a New Zealander from, who went and did a PhD in Australia, and coming to Trinity as a visiting scholar for that year transformed my world, so thank you. Um, I never thought I'd be standing in, in, this, in this wonderful hall where um, I got so much intellectual stimulation. Um, it's a real honor for me to be able to give uh, this lecture um, today, the annual Edmund Burke Lecture. And I want to thank, give particular thanks to the Fallon family for supporting the lecture and also uh, to Eve Patton for doing such a huge amount of work and your team have been amazing. So thank you very much and also, of course, for everyone here. Now, Edmund Burke, as we all know, was, of course, a remarkable politician, orator, public intellectual, and his dedication, if you like, to the moral codes that underpin social order and inform behavior remain as central to our world today as they did in his time. He too actually lamented the existence of some women who, in his words, raked their bloody hands in the bowels of their enemies, devouring as a nutriment to their ferocity some part of the bodies of those they have murdered, and therefore transforming themselves into unutterable abominations of the furies of hell. In my view, there was no one in his century who could beat that kind of rhetoric. Now, Burke, I think, might have seen in some of the women I'm going to be talking about today such monstrousness, such evil, if you like. And I hope to convince you that viewing evil women through the lens of history, law, medicine, and politics can reveal interesting things about the very nature of evil itself in a post-religious and a post-revolutionary age. My talk is going to focus on British, American, and Canadian women who have committed truly outrageous and violent crimes involving the evils of murder, rape, and torture. These women have inflicted exceptional levels of violence on other people. Their actions have attracted huge notoriety as well as uh, shock and, of course, revulsion. 
um, they are women who, at the times that their actions came into public knowledge, were widely proclaimed to be truly evil. Um, it is actually noticeable um, how less frequently this happens with men who have committed um, equally um, horrendous crimes. Um, when evil women commit their crimes alongside a man, you very quickly see him kind of slipping into the background of the narrative. Um, evil men are somehow more easily understood um, than their female counterparts, since rape and sexualized murder conform to a certain uh, recognized aspect of masculinity, even though, of course, a, a rather disturbing and, and minority distorted one. Um, there is even a heroic tradition of masculine evil that you simply don't find when you look at evil women. Now, although I'm going to be focusing on modern times, the history of evil more generally, of course, can be traced back to the beginning of human cultures. Evil women, though, have a special place in the circle of hell. They have incited um, our imagination since Lilith spurned her husband and since Eve plucked that apple from the tree of knowledge. Literature is infused through and through with monstrous, diabolical women. However, it is also, I think, notable that, um, with only a few exceptions, which I'm going to be mentioning, that historical, political, and criminological interest in real um, evil women um, is a fairly modern phenomenon. In the 1980s and then the 1990s, there was a tsunami of criminological, psychiatric, and forensic literature that documented, for the first time, documented surprisingly high levels of female criminality. Now, this groundswell of research involved all kinds of crime. Um, but was especially, and not coincidentally, preoccupied with women who committed crimes of sexual abuse, torture, and rape. Now, earlier commentaries had portrayed female sex criminals and torturers as rare. In fact, I could, I could put this more strongly, they were exceptional exceptions. Child sexual abuse by women had, of course, been widely acknowledged, especially since the 1970s. But this form of cruelty was almost exclusively intrafamilial um, and was positioned in the context of what was called at the time distorted loving. What changed, I think, in the 1980s and 1990s was the appearance in the public arena of women as abusers of strangers and of boys, girls, men, and other women. Violent women were still acknowledged to be a minority of these offenders, but they were a very large minority. Sexual violence was effectively degendered. Women do it too, became the chief mantra. Considerable intellectual energy was invested in trying to explain why female offenders had been invisible for so long, 
The most prominent explanation has been dubbed the chivalry um, theory, which hypothesized that in the past, male jurists and clinicians were e um, had either not regarded women's offending as sufficiently serious to warrant um, interventions, or they had given women the benefit of the doubt. In the words of one commentator, man's natural sympathy for women um, accused of aggressive crimes causes them to overlook important points against her out of fear of doing her injustice and injury. These commentators quipped that chivalry was especially compelling um, if the female offender was considered um, attractive in appearance. And the, the class-based and the whiteness of this um, remark was not acknowledged until a lot um, later. Now, the chivalry theory is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. In fact, there's no evidence for it, especially as regards um, major crimes. This is why I think the best research in the area fuses chivalry theory with what they call the evil women theory, in which the discovery of female offenders led to a backlash or recoiling against chivalry, resulting in female offenders being treated with particular harshness. So in other words, the evil woman theory positions violent women as significantly more socially and diagnostically pathological than their male counterparts, as well as more agetic. In other words, more responsible when women commit horrendous crimes, they are, in the famous phrase, doubly deviant, doubly damned. Now, all the women I'm going to look at today um, have had this evil woman theory applied to them. Within a very, very influential school of feminist thought, chivalry has been denounced as paternalistic, um, while the evilness of these women have been emphasized. Now, worryingly, this has taken place within the context of a neoconservative politics that ignores structural inequalities based on gender, class, racialization, and so on, as well as within the context or within the emergence of what's called carceral feminism. That is the lock them up and throw away the key brigade. Put another way, the slogan, women do it too, or women are as bad as men, has been co-opted within a particular brand of neoconservative feminists. They call themselves realist feminism. Um, that is based on four misconceptions. Um, first, women are as sexually violent as men. They are not. Second, the predominance of male violence against women has been exaggerated. It has not. All violence, physical and psychological, is the same. It is not. And that feminism, by which they mean other forms of feminism, um, spanning liberal to socialist, for example, um, bear a large burden of responsibility for the emergence of sexually violent women. It does not. The mantra, women do it too, insists on a common inhumanity that transcends gender. Now, perhaps the clearest statement to this effect is uh, Patricia Pearson's incredibly influential book called When She Was Bad, Violent Women and the Myth of Innocence. 
The Myth of Innocence, which was published in 1997. She claimed that, under the circumstances which suggests a widen, widening diversity in women's aggressive behavior, it is increasingly urgent that our culture acknowledge violence as a human rather than a gendered phenomenon. She admitted that men indeed do indeed have a more powerful left hook, but insists that women do evil too. Now, as I will be arguing, this type of analysis ignores inequalities and power relations based on dissections of gender, class, racialization, thus, I think, flattening out um, uh, analyses of female-led violence. But at the end of my talk, I want to hint about ways to go beyond intersectional analyses, that is, by developing a feminist ethics of care and responsibility that is not beholden to either medicalized or carceral approaches. Okay, as I've already mentioned, the so-called discovery of violent women in the 1980s and 1990s by criminologists, psychiatrists, and sociologists has largely focused on trying to explain their invisibility, their previous invisibility. Now, as a historian of science and medicine, I know there are some distinguished well, um, historians of science and medicine in this room, um, I think this is less interesting than, um, well, precisely because, in fact, there is a long history of academic speculation about violent women. This includes the reflections of forensic uh, physician and criminologist um, Lombroso, whose influential 19th century texts about male and female criminals propagated the views, the view that those criminals possessed congenital defects, which were both inherited and atavistic. In other words, reversion to something primitive, as he would have put it, as he did put it. Even more influential were the writings of the forensic psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who invented um, the diagnosis sadism or sadist. In his 1886 text, Psychopathia Sexualist, Kraft Ebbing devoted two pages to female sexual sadists. By the way, compared to 50 pages for male sexual sadists, blaming their actions on hyperexcitation of the motor sphere, hereditary degeneracy, and moral insanity. Now, however, these type of analyses, and there are others I could mention, but these are the two influential ones, these type of analyses remained the almost exclusive property of a tiny group of medical elites forensic specialists and clinicians who absorbed this information through the annals of their, most, their respective professional disciplines. The most attention that they received was in the ever-growing tomes of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM sort of the Bible of psychiatry, which from its first edition, which was in 1952, um, included diagnostic categories, sexual sadism and pedophilia. These diagnoses purported, as did everything in the DSM, to be gender neutral, but of course they were not. Um, the maleness of paraphilias, as they were called, para to go beyond, philia love to go beyond love, the, the maleness was actually explicitly stated. 
In the words of DSM-4, paraphilias are almost never diagnosed in females. Huh. They make an exception, you can guess, masochism, um, which us women tend to be particularly susceptible to. Um, uh, there were also more subtle ways, though, that maleness was introduced. For example, the DSM states that people suffering from paedophilia develop complicated techniques for obtaining access to children, which may include winning the trust of the child's mother or marrying a woman with an attractive child. So in other words, in the diagnostic categories, mothers are positioned as people who nurture their children rather than abuse them. This assumption that females are neither sexual sadists nor paedophiles rendered them practically invisible in forensic literature. The depraved human was decidedly male. Now, the impact of such psychological, uh, psychiatric sorry, knowledge, which could have been applied to women, was minimal until the 1980s and 1990s. The shift in these decades was not, I think, due to any embrace of clinical labels by the legal profession. Um, you know, they continued to emphasize the McNaughton rules that says that a defendant is insane if he or she does not know right from wrong or does not understand the moral nature of their acts. Nor do I think it was due to any significant ascendancy of psychiatric power. Rather, I think it was a response to a growing interest of politicians and lawmakers in ju juridical crackdowns and to the rise of neoconservative feminism. Four evil women, we're finally getting to my evil women, four evil women proved pivotal. These are Myra Hindley in the UK, convicted 1966. Aileen Lee Warnells in the US, convicted 1992. Carla Homalka in Canada, 1993. And Rose West in the UK, 1995. I'm not going to describe their crimes in any detail. To be really blunt, um, it's just really too painful to, to hear. Just to say they all involved um, acts of exceptional uh, cruelty involving sexual assault, torture, murder. These women were and are frequently compared to one another. Their names can be always found adjacent to the adjective evil. Their status is so legendary that facts um, um, are actually scarcely relevant. Hindley's crimes have been said frequently to be unknown in the history of sexual torture, whether by man or woman, manifestly false. Rose West was called UK's first female sadist. She wasn't. Lee Walnoz was dubbed America's first, um, first female serial killer. She wasn't. Homolka was said to be the Myra Hindley of Canada, and her crimes committed alongside Paul Bernardo. Um, were described as the Ken and Barbie killings um, due to the couple's conventional good looks. Now, I'm not arguing that these trials were directly responsible for the, the shifts in narrative that I'm going to be talking about, although the unprecedented public attention given to their crimes certainly helped the spread of many of these sociological and psychiatric ideas. But rather, I want to say that exploring these trials and subsequent reportage can help us identify crucial shifts in the narrative of evil and evil women um, in the modern period. I'm going to start with Myra Hindley, mainly because her crimes took place in the 1960s, that is, 
before the discovery or the invention of the female sex offender that I referred to earlier. I'm also going to start with her because her notoriety spanned the entire period that we're going to be looking at. She died in prison 2002, vilified to the very end as the most evil women in Britain. Very briefly, Hindley and her lover Ian Brady sexually tortured and killed at least five children and young people of both sexes. A tape recorder was found placing Hindley in the room during one of the sexual assaults. It would be impossible to exaggerate the impact of her trial, the public impact of her trial. Paradoxically, the psychiatric confirmation of Hindley's normality, psychiatric normality, made her seem more dangerous to, um, than her male co-offender. As the mother of one victim put it, unlike Brady, who was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and acute paranoia, Hindley did not have the decency to go mad. In addition, although their victims were boys and girls aged between 10 and 17, the psychiatric concept of paedophilia simply didn't exist. It had no um, appearance in those early, uh, early decades. Instead, three theories dominated. The first two, Nazism and the permissive society were unique to the 1960s, while a third one, the third one referred to an older discourse of degeneracy. Um, it was widely reported that Hindley and Brady were obsessed with the Nazis. Hindley adopted what she considered to be a Germanic look and accepted Bradley's pet name for her, Myra Hess. Um, two of their favorite books, Justine, or The Misfortunes of Virtue by the Marquis de Sade, and Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, which, as I mentioned earlier, invented the concept or the term sadism. In popular commentary, however, the term sadism with regards Hindley was not sexual sadism as a psychiatric category. Rather, it was sexual sadism as pornography. The most prominent analysis of Hindley at the time was Pamela Hansworth Johnson, very distinguished novelist and social commentator, who attended the trial in 1966. In a book, wonderful book, called On Iniquity, published in 1967, Johnson blamed the crimes of Hindley and Brady on pornography and the rise of the permissive, or what she called the affectless, society. Crucially, feminism was made to bear a share of responsibility for the fact that women do it too. Um, for Johnson, though, what concerned her was a class analysis of female violence as much as a gendered one. Johnson argued that texts such as Kraft Ebbing's should not be available in paperback where the lower orders, that is Clarks like Hindley and Brady, might have access. As she put it, there are some books that are not fit for all people and some people who are not fit for all books. Johnson's analysis also reflected widespread awareness in the 1960s in Britain about the horrors of Nazism. Johnson claims that the Nazis deliberately flooded Poland with pornography, using it as a means of social castration. 
Their aim, she wrote, was to make the individual conscious only of the need for personal sensation and to encourage withdrawal from any sort of corporate responsibility. The blunting of sensibility was not the way to an earthly paradise, but the way to Auschwitz. In this way, Nazism and permissiveness were tied into, into debates about evil women in the 1960s. The third theme that appeared time and again in discourses about Hindley found inspiration in theories of degeneration. The only way this can be understood is by reference to late 19th century texts, such as that of Lombroso um, and uh, Ferrero's 1893 text, La Donna di Cluic. Key terms were the stigmata of depravity and atavism. Unlike the classical idea of free will, Lombroso and his supporters defended biological determinism. For commentators in Hindley's, during Hindley's trial, the degeneracy of the female sex criminal was plain for all to see. Lombroso and his followers noted that the faces of female sex criminals were deeply lined and twisted, giving them the appearance of a satanic leer. Their hair was much more profuse in quantity than that of an honest woman and was darker, they believed. So Hindley's dyed blonde hair was an attempt to mask her depravity. Um, what explained the corruption, they asked, at the heart of women, female criminals? It was that they were primitive. They possessed masculine qualities, including exaggerated eroticism and lesbianism. Evil women were thought to menstruate much earlier. Um, Menstrual blood is dangerous, particularly to boys and men. Um, evil women were said to be more dangerous when piety and maternal feelings are replaced by cold passions and intense eroticism, muscular strength, and superior intelligence. When this happened, Lombroso wrote, the innocuous, semi-criminal who is always present in the normal woman is transformed into a born criminal, criminal more terrible than any male counterpart. This language, which to remind you is 19th century, late 19th century, was adopted time and time again in the 1960s to refer to Hindley. They emphasized her rejection of marriage, childlessness, sexual enthusiasms, including a lesbian tryst with Rose West in prison and disdain for religion. They were obsessed with her appearance. She, is, she was the peroxide-haired gorgon of that infamous police snapshot, claimed a Guardian editor, who exhorted readers to, look, look at her deviant eyes, evil eyes, we are meant to say spawn of the devil. God knows she probably has a head of snakes covered by a blonde wig to fool us, this evil, evil women. 
Guardian editors don't write like that anymore, do they? <laughs> I wish they did. Okay, um, um, Johnson concurred, observing that Hindley was sturdy in build and broad buttocked. Her hair was far too massive for the wedge-shaped face. In itself, it bears an uneasy suggestion of fetishism, but it is the lines of this porcelain face which are extraordinary. She will have a nutcracker face one day. Now, I've brought on Hindley in great length because she set the narrative which, against which the women do it to mantra was refracted throughout the century. Rose Met West makes the strongest contrast. Rose West and her husband, uh, Fred West, raped, tortured, killed at least nine women between 1973 and 1987, mainly in Gloucester. Convicted 1995, sorry, she was routinely compared to Hindley. However, one of the most common refrains was how unlike the two women were. West did not possess Lombroso-like traits, considered typical of evil women. The absence of any stigmata of degeneracy made her considerably more monstrous. How could anyone know the evil women um, if she resembled an ordinary mother? This worried Patricia Casey, consultant psychiatrist at the Matter Hospital here in Dublin. Looking at photographs of uh, Frederick um, and Rose West when they were infants, she was shocked to find that but there's nothing to suggest the course of depravity that their future lives would, would take. Observing Ro Rose West standing in the dock, Casey noted that she was the essence of motherliness to the unsuspecting eye plump, wearing solemn clothes, a crucifix, and thick glasses. So instead of degeneracy, these um, uh, observers turned to sexual sadism. This was not sadism as pornography, as with Hindley, but sadism as a paraphilia, as a mental illness. This brought pub public awareness um, and a questioning of the assumed maleness of this diagnosis. Many 1990s feminists, especially radical feminists schooled in activism against male rapists, found it difficult to accept that women might have deviant sexual um, desires, except for masochism. In other words, the belief that women do it too might include violence, but not sexualized violence. As Debbie Cameron, one of the authors of The Lust to Kill, admitted, when she heard about the crimes and rapes committed by Rose West, she did not find the reality easy to accept. After all, it wasn't that I believed women couldn't do appalling things. I knew from our research that they could and they had. But this one particular appalling thing, destroying another person for sexual pleasure, had not seemed to be in their repertoire. Importantly, the diagnosis of sexual sadism that was applied to West from the 1990s onwards was different from Kraft Ebbing's late 19th century account. In other words, this was not sexual sadism as atavistic. Rather, it was sexual sadism as part of a developmental disorder. By the 1990s, psychiatrists and clinical psychologists had turned the old and familiar adage of him to, who evil, him to whom evil is done, doth evil in return, into a full-blown psychological theory. 
There's no time in a talk of this length to trace why this developmental explanation became popular, but I think it is relevant to, um, but it is related, sorry, to a renewed focus on the importance of mothers and domestic labor in ensuring social stability, especially in times of rising crime rates and declining state spending. The most prominent proponent was that of the British psychiatrist and psychoanalyst John Bulby in his three volumes entitled Attachment and Loss, um, who uh, argued that crimes of violence were the result of attachment disorders. According to Bulby and his followers, relationships with carers, by which he meant um, birth mothers, um, enabled infants to develop knowledge about themselves and others. If infants were denied love, they experienced a powerful sense of loss and anger, which would affect their relationships with people throughout their lives. Abusive early life experiences were risk factors. Now, in other words, the abused becomes the abuser. This was easily applied to sex offenders like West. I mean, there's no question that her childhood um, was marked and marred by extraordinary, ext I mean, truly extraordinary levels of abandonment and abuse, um, including incest and rape. The argument was developed, this argument was developed more extensively when we turn to commentators writing, writing about Lee Warnos. She may be less known to some of you, but she is as notorious um, as Hindley and West in the US. In Florida, between December 1989 and November 1990, Warnos shot dead on separate occasions at least seven white, middle-aged men, all of whom were buying sex from her while she was working exit to exit um, on or near Interstate 75 freeway in Florida. She was tricked into confessing her crimes, tricked by her lover, Tyra Moore, into confessing her crimes. She was convicted in 1992, executed by lethal injection 10 years later. Modern audiences, and I'm sure people here all know, know her through the highly problematic 2003 film Monster, starring the Hollywood actress Charlize Theron, a role for which she won an Oscar. Now, in the history of sexually violent women, why is Warnos important? She is important because at the time, in fact, even before she was caught, and to this day, she has been called America's first female serial killer. When Warnos was arrested, the term serial killer was still a relatively new one, invented um, by FBI Special Agent Robert Ressler, defined and defined in ways that explicitly excluded female multiple murderers by insisting that victims had to be strangers and that perpetrators were motivated by sadistical sexual urges. As already mentioned, women were assumed not to have such um, monstrous urges and usually, and they did, usually targeted their own children, male partners, or people well-known to them, such as residents in a home for the elderly. By contrast, Warnall's victims were all strangers. So she was given the title first female serial killer because so-called male definitions of serial killers could be applied to her. Serial killing became an equal opportunity activity. Now, homophobia rapidly came to the fore. Every, every court case and appeal 
every psychiatric evaluation, every newspaper article honed in on Warnall's lesbianism. Now, oh, in reality, she wasn't a lesbian. Today, we would probably call her bisexual, but as I say, facts don't really matter when talking about evil. Once again, explanations for the rise of evil women turn to psychiatry and other medical discourses, which have a long history of pathologizing sexual preference. Even a progressive physician, such as Havelock Ellis, who believed that inverts, um, old term for homosexuals, were transgressing societal norms, not nature. Even he claimed in his classic text, Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Sexual Inversion, 1896, that inverted women who may retain their female emotionality combined with some degree of infantile impulsiveness and masculine energy present a favorable soil to the seeds of passionate crime. In other words, lesbians were both infantile and masculine, a potent combination that could lead to um, criminal activity. Now, these tropes appeared time and again in commentary about Warnos. Wasn't she simply a lesbian man-hater? Didn't her job as a sex worker exacerbate her hatred of men? Wasn't she acting like a man, and, especially, and specifically a male serial killer? In such ways, Warnos' lesbianism, lesbianism was entered as an aggravating circumstance in the sentencing phase of her trial, leading to her execution. Warnor's alleged lesbianism created problems for the growing number of lesbian activist groups at the time. Um, I don't have time to discuss this, but basically, some of them tried to support her on the grounds that she was a sex worker acting in self-defense, while others attempted to distance themselves from her, fearing um, further um, stigmatization. But to many neoconservative commentators and those on the evangelical right, it was common sense that Warnall's was a bull dyke man-eater, as one headline put it. My final example is Carla Homolka, um, a white, heterosexual, conventionally beautiful, feminine young woman who, along with her husband, Paul Bernardo, enthusiastically participated in the sadistic killing of four girls between, the age, between 1990 and 1992. Now, in exchange for giving evidence against Bernardo, Homolka received a prison sentence of only 12 years, not life. It was only afterwards um, that a video was discovered revealing that she had been a very active participant in the torture. Now, Hamolko allows me to focus in on themes that have, that have already appeared, albeit less explicitly, in this talk. That is the intersections of gender, class, racialization, and sexuality. Hamolko presented criminologists and psychiatrists and legal experts with a problem. She was a respectable, good girl, white, middle-class, heterosexual woman. Her blonde attractiveness did not mask any atavistic instincts or primitive propensities. There was no difficult childhood to um, excavate, no attachment disorders to evoke. Lesbianism was out of the frame. In other words, commentators from a wide range of perspectives struggled to fit Homolka 
into the explanatory frameworks that they had developed for low life, like the white but working class and sexually polymorphous Hindley West Warners. Initially, they turned to feminist insights drawn from activists around domestic violence. Particularly important was forensic psychologist Leonore Walker's Battered Women Syndrome, as developed in her 1972 book, The Battered Woman. Walker's book, which by the way was avidly re read by Homolka herself, provided an argument for why abused women might kill their abusers, by the way, which is she didn't do, but more crucially for, for Homolka, why battered women might not just leave. In other words, it provided feminists and non-feminists commentators with an explanation for why Homolka did not return to her loving, economically secure, and increasingly worried family. Now, this battered woman defense was initially persuasive to many people. Newspapers then, newspapers published photographs of Homolka's raccoon eyes caused by being smashed um, by Bernardo at the back of her head with a flashlight. And a physician claimed that her injuries were the worst case of wife assault that I have seen in my experience as an emergency room physician. However, this defense was quickly undermined. After all, after Homolka made a plea deal with the judges, a film emerged showing her laughing while actively engaging in sadistical acts alongside her male partner. To explain, how do you explain this? To explain this behavior, Robert Hazelwood, Janet Warren, and Mark Dees developed the compliant victim framework. Not only were these authors highly respected psychological scientists from prestigious universities and the FBI, but they also provided a frame of meaning explicitly directed at how white middle-class women might be ensnared by white lower-class male sexual sadists and brainwashed into committing terrible acts. Compliant victims gradually, according to their story, gradually assimilated their partner's sexual fantasies, originally as an attempt to protect themselves, but then increasingly to please their sadistic part partner. Furthermore, the concept emphasized the centrality of the, the victims, the victims, the compliant victims, middle-class heterosexual whiteness. After all, it was founded the explanation was founded on the idea that male sadists preferred good girls, meaning white women of a higher economic, socioeconomic class to themselves. Um, according to this view, Homolka suffered from a double defect. She was a victim, but she was also compliant. Now, this was very different from the frame applied to Hindley three decades earlier, although Hindley, of course, was also um, a good white girl living with a male sexual sadist. Hindley was depicted, however, as hyperagenic. She was a hyperagent, so much so that Brady faded into the distance, barely thought about again until he died. Indeed, Hindley's agency was such that she served over 30 years in prison when men who committed even worse crimes than her rarely served more than 14. In contrast, Homolka was dubbed a compliant victim, barely possessing agency at all, but acting at the whim of her handsome young white male lover with whom she was besotted. So why was there the need 
in the 1990s onwards for a specific diagnosis for female perpetrators based on class, whiteness, and heterosexuality. Of course, high-profile cases of good girl perpetrators, such as Molka, did play a role. More important were a series of moral panics about brainwashing that had been growing during the Cold War. From the 1970s, they included the Stockholm uh, Syndrome, whereby hostages um, became emotionally attached to their captives. But more importantly, a huge range of sensationalist films and books documenting the brainwashing of young, middle-class, good, white women, such as the Manson Girls and Patty, um, Patty Hearst. Crucially, the compliant victim theory was about heterosexuality. As we saw when I was discussing Warnos, there's a long history of pathologizing evil women as masculine lesbians, acting like men. You know, an essentialist view of men as sort of normally violent. In contrast, Homolka's heterosexuality required explanation, and which the compliant victim frame um, gave, offered. Homolka was white. This is important because the compliant victim framework was racialized through and through. Women of color were unlikely contenders for the diagnosis. The sort of learned helplessness that was central to the category was attached to passive white women, not strong and angry women of color. It was Homolka's good girl, white, respectable heterosexuality that enabled her to claim the status of a victim, the status of a victim, or status of victim of a male sadist. It's no coincidence that so much of the media commentary surrounding the trials centered on Homolka's fairy tale wedding to what turned out to be a male beast. This was sort of a magical narrative in which the heterosexual white princess is transformed by male malevolence into an evil child abusing witch. Finally, let's turn to where we started. Women do it too. The paradox was that it was a certain group of self-styled feminist realists who sought to increase the penalties against evil women, such as Hindley, West Warnors, and Homolka. This is the castle feminist route that I, I spoke about. Furthermore, the mantra, women do it too, um, made violent women more responsible for their actions than their male co-offenders. They were deserving of greater penalties, punishment, than the men. To illustrate this point, and there, there could have been dozens of other examples, return to Pearson's When She Was Bad and the Myth of Innocence. Pearson was contemptuous of excuses based on ideas about battered women or compliant victims. She wanted the full power of the custodial state, state to crush evil women. As she argued, Homolka was a necessary trigger for Paul Bernardo's sadistic spree of torture, rape, and murder. In her arguments, the evil of Bernardo's actions were downgraded to ordinary rape more like an inability to read the other person's needs. It was Homolka's jealousy that caused the combustive reaction, sexual torture and murder. Bernardo only raped. With Homolka by his side, he also sexually tortured and murdered. 
then this notion, this notion that the horrors these two people committed were the results of the simple jealousy of a beautiful white good girl um, who enticed an innocent man is of course highly damaging, not only because it's factually incorrect, facts don't seem to matter much here, um, Bernardo committed at least 12 sadistic rapes prior to meeting her, but because it normalizes ordinary male rape and sets women as passive, um, simple jealousy was the problem. They're easily, monstrably um, manipulated and outside the human. But I'm going to conclude with Edmund Burke. He begged his readers to, excuse me, if I have dwelt too long on the atrocious spectacle, or have given too much scope to the reflections which have arisen in my mind. And I'm also going to beg your indulgence. Um, it's one of the central contentions um, of this talk, that the appearance of a sexually violent women in the 1960s and their discovery in the 1980s provided ammunition for an anti-feminist backlash. In the 1960s, the backlash was a response to anxieties about increased consumption of pornography, emerging guilt about Hitlerism, um, worries about the spread of permissiveness amongst women as well as the working classes and lower middle classes. There was an underlying fear of more positive forms of feminism as well. In other words, the empowerment of women was causing the social and moral codes that the category woman was expected to uphold to crack. Panic surrounding the evil of Hindley were related to groups. Evil was spread over populations, threatening wider social disorder. Now, what was happening in the 1990s was very different. By the 1990s, anxieties about the rise of evil women circulated, circled around fears about individuals the inadequacies of mothers, women who were believed to be acting like men, and passive women susceptible to brainwashing by sadistic men or even by radical and socialist feminism, feminists. The idea of evil passed from these general characteristics of groups of people to individualist conceptions of agency related to identities, individual identities, inadequate mothers, sexual minorities, weak, victimized personalities. These were individual women who had chosen evil. The four case studies I've explored today draw attention to shifts in ideas about female agency and the construction of violence within legal and medical discourses. In all these cases, evil women are not simply women who have done unimaginably unimaginably terrible violence to other people. They were women who are evil. They were damned for who they are as much as for what they do. Now, of course, this is a narrative we must resist. We don't have to make Manichean choices between good and evil, or even between victim and perpetrator, which is the most common abstraction from lived experience. Women who harm others use, using exceptional violence act in ambivalent ways and according to fickle and fleeting desires. They, both resi they resist both the explanations provided by criminology, psychology, and psychiatry, and 
They resist the mythologizing of journalists and true crime commentators, or indeed historians. Crucially, from my point of view, and this is the point I'm developing in the whole book, when contemplating evil, it's insufficient to focus on individuals stripped of, inter of interrelationships with other peoples and environments, with all the attendant power relations and structural hierarchies. To do so is to contribute to a depoliticizing of moral harms. But it is also important to note that paying attention to different gendered, class, racialized, sexualized, and so on identities and the complex mix of intersectionalities still assume a pre-existing subject, in this case, an evil woman, who are the possessors of characteristics interpolated by others in themselves. And this is too narrow an approach. The criminologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and journalists that we've been following here in this talk um, all assume an external evil that imposes upon an internal subject. These external forces included pornography, permissiveness, etc., attention, attachment, diagnosis, development disorders, patriarchy, and romantic love. And they could incite varying responses. Rather, I suggest that we need to turn to a more relational feminist ethics that encourage us, encourages us to consider more morally messy and ambiguous interrelationships between people who have committed horrendous crimes and us, the untarnished ones. It suggests the need for further reflections about the responsibility of us, the neighbors, teachers, medical professionals, family members, passerbyers who create and are created by those we later know to be truly evil. Thanks.